like what I usually say is, you know, it's, you know, if if you're like autoandrophilic or autogynophilic, it's okay to be this thing. Um, the science for it is, like, the science for autogynophilia is pretty solid. Um, autoandrophilia science is sadly underdeveloped. Um, but it, it clearly exists. There's cases in the literature, but I, I basically I tell people that like it's it's okay that Blanchard was right, you know, <laughs> like he was right, and and that's that's okay. It doesn't like it's not bad to be this thing. It's just a different way of being that presents its own set of difficulties, but it doesn't mean you're immoral or a monster or anything. Um, it's it's just you know, just an unconventional sexual orientation and that it's, yeah, it's okay to be this thing and you don't need to believe in this, like, gender religion. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the audio version of Broadview. I'm Lisa Selen Davis, and here's a story I forgot to tell Phil Illy, my guest today. I was having reading time with my 11-year-old daughter, and I didn't realize that instead of reading her own book, she was peering over my shoulder as I read Phil's book, which is called Auto-Heterosexual, Attracted to Being the Other Sex. And all of a sudden she said, Mama, what's an adult diaper baby lover? And I said, I'm really sorry that you saw that because you deserve to have gone your whole life or at least your entire childhood without knowing about that phrase or that activity. And that exchange, I think, encapsulates some of the following discussion with Phil about who should know what and when. He was an adult when he figured out that his troubles with gender could be explained by a sexual orientation he had never heard of, autogynophilia which means roughly uh, love of oneself as a woman. Thinking he'd found the key to his struggles, he reached out to others to commune over what he assumed was their shared experience, but instead he found censorship, denial, gaslighting. Many of you probably have found that same thing. And he decided that he didn't want others to go through what he'd gone through, And he wrote a book to bring knowledge to those who wouldn't otherwise access it in this time when so much information is politicized. Now, there's a lot we didn't get to in this conversation, mostly because I kept arguing with him about the meanings of very basic words like uh, gender and words that he coined like femaleness uh, or sexness. And um, he has coined some new terms, and he's also redefined some terms like euphoria and dysphoria in ways that might help some people accept themselves, um, but also might upset some other people. You're used to that by now. What we didn't talk about was all the other stuff in the book, (laughs) not just adult diaper baby lovers, but auto furries who are uh, people who are attracted to themselves as uh, being an animal and um, people with transracial sexualities because, you know, I can only enrage so many people at once. So if you're interested in that, take a look. Um, There's a lot Phil and I disagree on, but ultimately we do share one message. We've got to stop lying about autogynophilia. Thanks for listening. 
So Phil, Illy, welcome to Broadview. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Can you tell me a little bit about the origin story of your book, Auto Heterosexual? So as much about you or um, as much about you coming to write this book as you want to start with? Um, I guess, like, in short, I found out about autogenophilia about four years ago now, and I, um, after a little bit of reading, I realized this probably described me, um, because I had gender issues and I knew I wasn't homosexual, so, um, after I got obsessed with learning about it because, you know, basically I had a sexual orientation I'd never heard of. And that kind of blew my mind. And it was a very, it felt very strange to have this orientation. And then when you talk to other people that, that you can tell have it, and then they tell you that it's made up and not true, you know, that, that gaslighting was kind of hard to deal with. So it made me just dive deeper into the research to like, make sure that my beliefs were real because I wanted to believe what was real and understand myself so that I could finally understand like why I had gender issues. How did you find out about it and what were your gender issues? Um, let's see. I found out about it by, I had been dating someone that, um, I now know is woke. I didn't know the word at the time, but basically after we broke up, um, I went to the library and got got out Alice Drager's book, um, Galileo's Middle Finger. And then I was reading that. It pointed to Bailey's book, The Man Who Would Be Queen. And then from there, I just read everything online I could find related to autogynophilia. And then I, I read the primary sources. And I just, I just kept going deeper and deeper. Um, and I could tell that I had... As far as like gender issues, there was times in the past where I'd felt gender dysphoria because I didn't look like a female or that like socially I wasn't in a social role of being female um, and I wanted to be. And this theory sort of explained why I had that dissatisfaction. And because I understand it now, it hurts less. Um, but when it was just like these randoms, these strong feelings that happen once in a while that I couldn't explain, um, it hurt more. What led you to take out Alice Drager's book? I I heard her on um, tangentially speaking, um, Chris Ryan's podcast, and um, like while I was on vacation, and then when I got back to town, I was like, I'm gonna go check out that book, and then I was reading it in the library, and I. I I saw the stuff about Bailey and then I looked up online. It's like, oh, the library has it. So I went downstairs and grabbed Bailey's book too. And uh, I took both those home. That was on like, I guess it was March 27th, 2019. was the day I'm talking about. And ever since then, um, I've been catapulted into learning about um, autogynophilia, autoandrophilia, and other autosexual orientations. So the gender issues you're talking about are a, a sense both that you wish you wish you had a, a woman's body and you wish, what do you mean by women's social role? Like if, 
like I can remember this one time I can think of where I was hanging out with a few uh, female friends of mine and then like you know I was having a good time it was very nice and then one of their boyfriends came over and joined us and all of a sudden my mood dropped like noticeably and I, like kind of got quiet and it didn't make any sense to me but in, in hindsight I I can tell that there was some part of me that wanted to be a woman among women and having another male in the room like made that not possible psychologically so So do you do you think there can be social gender dysphoria then like do you think we should be distinguishing between gender dysphoria i wish that i wish i could uh have this kind of relationship or be accepted as a member of this group versus there's something terribly wrong with my body and I need these body parts removed. Right. Yeah. B- basically w- with auto heterosexual gender dysphoria, there's anything, any category of thing that can cause a positive feeling. Gender euphoria can also cause its inverse gender dysphoria. And so, you know, since there's all the different embodiment subtypes of like anatomic um interpersonal you know that social one we're talking about and um you know sartorial like the clothing and behavioral um basically all we can suffer in with respect to gender in any of these subcategories of gendered embodiment so when people talk about gender dysphoria um yeah a lot of times they're talking past each other because you'll have the the transsexuals saying gender dysphoria is just a body thing and then you have other people saying that no i'm having social dysphoria and realistically any of these aspects of gender and embodiment can cause the negative gender feelings we know as dysphoria or the positive feelings known as euphoria well gender dysphoria is a clinical diagnosis with a set of criteria and it includes distress or impairment because of it so it's not just I don't feel good. I wish I was seen treated differently. And euphoria is a a kind of unrealistic and difficult to manage um, uh, emotion that is unsustainable. So I I had um, you know I thought your book was interesting and it made interesting points and I think. It is really, really important to talk about autogynophilia and it's really important to understand how it drives um, the cultural shift. But I think, um, I was wondering how many terms in the book that you coined yourself and then presented as, as accepted terms like allo-heterosexuality was that did you decide that or is that out there? I hadn't heard that. And then I also didn't even know how you defined the word gender. Um, and I personally almost never use gender as a, a feeling. So if I, I think saying sex dysphoria, I have a problem with my body is very different than gender dysphoria, which is I have a problem with the expectations laid upon me because of my sex. And and if we're going to say that dysphoria is discomfort from that, from the social role I'm put into because of my sex, I would say every, uh, not every woman, but many, 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 many women would be experiencing gender dysphoria were that 
the definition, but it, it's impairment. It, it means you can't function in, in the official clinical definition. Right. So there's, in the book, when I'm talking about gender dysphoria, I'm not talking about how it's used in the medical establishment. I'm talking about the the phenomenon that autoheterosexuals experience of having negative mood shifts or just overall dissatisfaction with perceived shortcomings of cross-gender embodiment. Like they want to be another gender you, and any shortcoming hurts. What's a gender then? Uh, gender with- is sexness in a word gender just means sexness um is that is that a word you made up sexness or is that an well you can add ness on to basically any word Mm -hmm. um but yeah no i stumbled upon (laughs) i mean sure but like it kind of captures your point yeah gender Um, is sexness but agent you said agender as a singular well no, like, for instance, you know, like, femininity is femaleness, right? And, and like, masculinity. No, no. No? No. Oh, no. Definitely not. I mean, I, what well, is femininity? I, don't I don't think there's a, a femaleness. I think there are males and females, and they, and each of them differs in their degree of traditional or stereotypical uh, uh, femininity and masculinity. So, no, I don't. Right, but the, these constructs of masculinity and femininity, you, like you acknowledge they exist, right? I acknowledge that the constructs exist, and I acknowledge that some of them are rooted either in, in biology or either in um, the reproductive systems by, you know, a lot of times when they talk about... Um, you know, women's kind of nurturing or feelings about their children are innate, but then they say, actually what happens is you give birth vaginally and your body releases oxytocin, which is like the love drug. So I'm like, is it innate or did you, did you release oxytocin so you don't murder your infant child? But I, I think that um, having studied a lot of how our ideas about what boys and girls are like, how they shift generationally, culturally, geographically, temporally, um, you know, I'm more on the cultural than the biological side, but I would never deny that gender, our social, which I define as the social meaning of sex or the expectations and stereotypes attached to sex, I would never decide that, deny that there's some, um, some biological component to them and I certainly wouldn't deny the biological reality of sex because I exist and I reproduced. <laughs> so I know what I know what sex is, but I I don't think there is a, a a singular femaleness or maleness. And I don't think that each person has a gender identity. I think it's a a flawed concept that has been wielded um, mostly to cover up autogynophilia. That's what um, I think. Well, okay, so while I agree with you that there is no singular masculinity or singular femininity, everyone does have in their head ideas about what constitutes the masculine or feminine. And as you said, it varies across time and culture. Um, but like people, they do have these perceptions, you know, and there's sort of, there'll be more timeless ones like 
the fact that that males are taller means that you know tallness might seem masculine to a lot of people or like strength might seem stronger um and whereas like maybe psychological traits such as being nurturing might be seen as feminine because you know that is the the sex females are the ones that have to you know raise offspring because of their biology so basically i there are psychological differences between the sexes that are biological and yeah it's true that culture also has an impact um but yeah, I there think are that... average, there are average psychological differences, but right. you were just conflating physical and, and personality traits. There are average differences, you know, the overlapping curves um, there and there are, um, and some of that, it's impossible to know exactly how much is cultural and how much is biological. And, and we have times in history where it's, there's a big emphasis on the biological and, you know, Margaret Mead and early anthropology in America. And we have times where biological takes precedence. I, I think we're in a time of um, where people are wielding its biological in, in all kinds of ways. Again, like the concept of gender identity. So yes, we, every culture has gender that, that we know of. And by that, I mean, ideas about uh, who men and women are and should be because of their sex. So that I don't think of that as an internal thing. Um, right. I think of that as a, a largely external thing. And so I, I feel like, you know, you have this project, which you haven't really gotten into. And the project is to raise awareness about autogynophilia, as you mentioned. Um, well, and autoandrophilia. And autoandrophilia, but, you know, many people think it doesn't even exist in that scientific world. There's debate about whether it exists. So, uh, um, But if they're wrong, then it's important to talk about it. Right. It's important not to politicize research. And um, who should talk about it when? That we'll, we'll get to that. But I do think that it's very important to use clear language and to distinguish between accepted concepts and, and terms that you coin yourself or that you have your unique meaning of. And I was just trying to drill down on some of that, um, especially gender, you know, um, because I think there's an entire generation that has been trained to think of gender not as this imposition on them, but as this thing that's innate inside them. But but the truth is it's your both. relationship, well, not in not in, in my definition, but maybe in yours, right? That's part of the issue. And that's why it's so important to define what you mean by gender. You mean femaleness and maleness. It's, yes. Yeah, it's a meaningless it's the, concept to me. I mean. Not to argue, say, just to, just yeah, to, no, just I mean, to say like, we're coming we need to be able to talk, I need to know what, we need to have a, some kind of common language to have this conversation. Right, and like, I'm I'm getting the perception that you come from the, the social constructionist, um, maybe sort of um, gender critical perspective that, that gender is uh, sort of imposed on people by society as a means of oppressing females as a class. Like, is, is that 
I, I don't think that that's the goal of it. And I think men are just as confi confined by gender roles. And, and one of the things that switched generationally is in the 90s, there was all this girl crisis literature. You're young, but there was. Um, and now there's all this boy crisis literature, right? So it's like, there's a lot of attention right now to um, how gendered expectations are affecting boys and men. So I, I, I think it's so, I think it's, I think there are two sexes and, and there, each society has an idea about uh, how those two sexes are and should be. And there are probably are, uh, there are certainly uh, biological, you know, similarities uh, across, you know, everyone because of we're all male and female, but there are a lot of different ways of, um, a lot of different ways to interpret how men and women should behave and, and, and how to treat the transgressors. You know, there are a lot of different ways to make sense of those who transgress those expect those culturally based expectations, and again, I think reproductive related behaviors are um, are somewhat biological, but they're also not just fixed. You know, they also respond to the environment. I used oxytocin as an example. I heard someone talking about aggression, and I think it was in chimps, and saying that's not social because they're chimps. And it's like, well, they're, those are highly social animals, right? They have ideas about how males and females are. And then there's some research about giving testosterone to female fetuses at certain times, and then they become more aggressive. But also their bodies have been masculinized and it's hard to tell like, hey, those monkeys also have socialization. So I like to keep it very complicated, but I also like to know the the person I'm talking to, um, are, are we just talking past each other because we just don't even define these words the same way, even though I think we have some overlapping concerns and missions? Yeah, I mean, we I, th I think we can agree that that gender, part of gender is a societal imposition on people and, and like socially constructed. I, I just think it's also um, each individual person has their own idea of what constitutes masculinity or femininity and sort of the cultural manifestation of it is kind of just like the aggregation of all the individuals together, their beliefs. So it's, yeah, I think it's both individual and, and collective, like what gender is. And that's why people argue about it so much about what it is. It's really hard to pin down. Um, and yeah. that's why I th like the, the term sexness for it, because the nest just indicates that, um, it's like the quality or condition of being that thing. And, you know, everyone will have a different perspective on what that is. So you were experiencing various modes of what you define as gender dysphoria, even though it's, it's sort of, it's not the scientific definition and you, and you were experiencing it more in terms of clothes and social role than in your body or in your body too. Um, the body sometimes, um, but yeah, it's, I mean, I, I talk about gender dysphoria, not in the medical definition. Cause like what you'll see in the DSM, it's, it's trying to accomplish a specific task of helping clinicians sort out, should we give this person hormones or not like that? They're trying to solve a particular 
like clinical judgment problem, but the the broader phenomenon of gender dysphoria happens outside of the clinic. Um, and it's yeah, and and it can manifest in a whole bunch of different ways. So yeah, like the dissociation. Like, have you read Elliot Page's new book yet? I haven't read it. No, because he he dissociates a lot in there. Um, he was like alienated from himself and it really kicked in hard around puberty. Um, and after that, he like kind of, he could look in a mirror, but never saw himself there. Like he could, like, he'd be looking in his eyes and and see like, am I even in there? That sort of feeling. Mm-hmm. And like that, that's um, one of the like types of autosexual dysphoria is like, it makes it hard to relate to yourself. Because, like, your brain is looking for a cross-gender self in there. And then when it can't find it, it's like, wow, I must not be there. That's not me. Tell me about the gaslighting. You discovered this about yourself. You made, you did all this research. You you adopted and, and partially invented a language to explain it. But you felt like you discovered this thing that other people denied, even as they described it, which is how, uh, mm-hmm. when we emailed, I asked you about the ContraPoints video arguing against autogynophilia, because I thought, this is an argument for it. You're saying it's not real, but then you're describing yourself and it sounds exactly. very similar. Yeah. And actually, I want to go, after you tell me this, just, I want to go back to that, because I think a lot of that has to do with, um, a language also it has to do with not being able to see words as just descriptions without these moral values attached like the word fetish so first tell me about like how you experience the gaslighting and then we'll we'll go back to this other point um basically you know i did a couple months of intense reading about trans stuff and with a particular focus on autogynophilia and the typology and then when I asked trans women online about it. They just flat out denied it like really intensely. And it made me doubt my reality. Cause I was like, Oh, I, I feel like I was finally figuring out the source of my gender issues. And then I get told by all the people that supposedly would know about this sort of thing. You know, the transgender people, I get told by them that that's all fake and not real. And so it made me doubt. And that's, like if they hadn't lied to me, I probably wouldn't have written ended up writing a book about it. But um yeah, it just made me I had to know what was real because I believe that there is objective truth and that science is the least bad way of arriving at it. And mm-hmm. um so I read the scientific literature pertaining to autogynophilia and transvestism and transsexualism from like when these terms were coins to all to the present day you know like i went back to hirschfeld and craft ebbing mm-hmm. uh you know over 100 years ago and you the narratives in those books it's it is autogynophilia that the people are describing but they didn't have the right words for it at the time uh well i know what you mean although sometimes especially is craft craft ebbing is is the inverse he wrote um psychopathia sexualis the first like but did he describe the in the inverts or is that uh i forget who coined sexual inversion as a thing i know that um 
I mean, that was just a common term back then. I can't remember who coined it. I I don't know if it was Cars Ulrich or someone else. Um, um, well, that I mean, that's why I was, it's funny you bring him up, right? Because he also was he was describing feminine homosexuals, and and so were some of those inverts. You know, some of that was just feminine gay men and masculine gay women. Right, and that's the homosexual inversion as opposed to the autosexual inversion that I wrote about. So there's basically just two types of queer when it comes to gender, gendered sexuality. There's the same-sex attraction and there's cross-gender attraction. Right, but I'm saying in, in their early research, they don't have those, they don't have those many categories. So some inverts included lots of gay people and even Carl Ulrich was like, didn't classify, if I recall correctly, didn't classify masculine men as gay or inverts or he was and right. he wasn't attracted to other feminine men. He was a he was a feminine man attracted to uh, to masculine men and, and he wanted to normalize that too. He fought pretty hard to destigmatize that. He lost that battle, but well for tried. the time. He was ahead of his time, yeah. but but that that battle has waged on because other people have decided that it's worth fighting for and there's been gains yeah. in, in that department. So you felt gaslit by the trans community that you had realized you were part of or, or thought you would be part of with this self-discovery. Why did you think they were denying it? And what were um, they saying? What were they saying was the what made them trans then if not auto heterosexuality um i mean i didn't try to press them too much on it it's clear that it like touched a button and that it was not a good idea to engage like that they were emotionally aggravated and you know once people get to that point it's it's hard to be rational with them um but i think like what drove um, there's a couple things that drive that sort of denial of it. There's there's unaddressed sexual shame. Um, that's that's pretty strong as a motivator. And there's also the very strong attachment to that cross gender self. And so when they hear the theory that describes like the source of their desire to I like the the reason they identify as the other gender or sex is because they're ultimately, they have a quirky kind of heterosexuality associated with their birth sex. It, it hits them as very invalidating and hurtful. And um, it just, they really don't like it a lot of the time. So they wouldn't volunteer why, and you know they don't like it, but it, it seems like, um, there's a concerted effort to deny it and um, a coordinated attempt to discredit it. Um, and, and, you know, I don't, <laughs> and there's a, a section on a certain website that's, that's designed to um, discredit uh, researchers and writers and others. And if you write about uh, what you call auto heterosexuality, you wind up on that website if you get any attention at all. <laughs> I, I know which one you're talking about. Are you intentionally yeah, so not naming yeah. it because yeah. the person's crazy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 
yes, obviously mm-hmm. if you've read Alice Draker's book, you know better. But um, yeah, the site that yeah. shan't be named. Yeah, the site that shan't be named. That's what we'll call <laughs> this episode. Um, uh, I mean, I think I am very different in so many ways than the sexologists, and I find their points of view fascinating. But there's this kind of eagerness to argue and to um, and to they are a lot of cantankerous people on a listserv that you and I are both on and uh, and there's a challenge like can you defend your point um, and perhaps because I am female or my perhaps because of my femaleness or perhaps because of my femininity or the way I've been socialized um, I usually cower in the face of those um, I instead of instead of saying um, yeah it's intimidating right yeah. Yeah, it's intimidating for me. And instead of saying, gosh, interesting, interesting question. Let me think about that for a minute. And if I don't have a good answer saying, yeah, I don't have a good answer. I'll have to think about that. Or I think, okay, I'm not going to get, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent, but um, at, at any rate, I, I find that, um, like I said, a lot of, a lot of those sexologists, they don't even think there's a female version of this. Um, even though as, as you know, the book Gender Queer is about a female with autoandrophilia. Yeah. Um, so, and as I wrote about, there was no coordinated campaign against that, right? There was no pressure to deny that. That book has been championed. That book has been championed by the trans community even though it's about autoandrophilia, but autogynophilia is vehemently denied and anyone who espouses belief in it is ferociously attacked. Yeah, um, I think the reason genderqueer is championed is has more to do with the fact that it was first demonized by the right. And it's it's about like, oh, our enemies are against this. That means we have to be for it. So I don't know that it's it's because of the actual content of the book, though, I did find it a pretty good, relatable book in terms of showing sort of what autoandrophilic gender dysphoria can feel like. Um, I, I thought it was pretty sympathetic and, you know, relatable. And so, yeah, I do like that book. And I, I hope that I, as, as far as you mentioning the sexologist not um, really being on board with autoandrophilia yet, I'm hoping to convince them on this. Um you know, just steadily, you know, poke and nudge over time. Because I, I know that, like, they're not holding, they're tr- they're holding beliefs because they think it's true and not, it's not personal, you know, that they disagree. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to find out true things. And so some of them just have a, this pre-existing belief that females can't have paraphilias. And I just think that's not supported by the evidence. There are some, like, it's definitely less common in females, but it still does happen in them. And um, that eventually, over time, they will be convinced that there is a female analog of male autogynophilia. I'm glad you brought up paraphilia because, A, I've been searching and searching in that word for my mind for the last two weeks. And I was like, it's not a fetish, it's a and uh so thank you for returning me to that word and that brings me back to the point about language and um and the the vicious reaction to this concept 
And one of the things that keeps happening and that happens so quickly in this version of society is that any word you can think of gets politicized in any way you want, right? So um, a, a paraphilia is what? An, an attraction to basically a non-genital part of the body, non-sexual non ca characters, secondary sex characteristics. So paraphilia, at least in the DSM, paraphilia is defined in relation to what they call normophilia. And normophilia is um, basically what we think of as vanilla. It's when you're attracted to someone, like sexually attracted to someone that's uh, physically, like phenotypically normal, a, like postpubescent, you know, adult of, you know, one of the sexes. And it, yeah, it's basically the regular it's unusual, sort of... unusual sexual desires of some kind. Right. I guess a a, maybe a fetish is when you're attracted to something that's not secondary sex characteristics then. Fetish, that, so, am I mixing them up? So sexual fetishism um, is subdivided into two different types of things. Um, one is partialism, which is attracted to non-genital body parts. And okay. another thing is attraction to non-living objects or you know, commonly like materials such as like latex uh -huh. or leather or fur. Or shoes. Shoe fetish. Yeah, yeah. There's I a mean, foot like, fetish and there's a shoe fetish. Right. Yeah. And the so reason... like that's fetishism. Oh, that's not like when people colloquially use the term fetish, they're not necessarily talking about sexual fetishism. And so like the language can be confusing. But when sexologists talk about sexual fetishism, they're talking about attraction to non-genital body parts or non-living objects. Mm -hmm. So I often hear um, autogonophilia referred to as a fetish as opposed to a paraphilia. But either way, what I wanted to say about it was those to the sexologist are neutral clinical descriptions, right? Yeah, but yeah. They're not, they're not judgmental to, to sexologists. But right. um, when you're talking to normies, normies do assign moral worth to these various words. And so I don't describe, I know I don't call autogynephilia or autoendrophilia. I don't call them fetishes or kinks because um, it doesn't capture like the deep emotional impact these orientations have on the people that have them. And um, I, I just want, people to recognize that these are a powerful influence on someone's life and it might it might not be usual but what matters is whether they act on it in ethical ways yeah and i want to get i want to expand on that in a second but i just to reiterate this point is that we we wouldn't need new language if people weren't overlaying this moralism onto them so if we could say it's a paraphilia without someone saying ew right? Or, oh, it's a fetish. And someone said, oh, okay, now I get it. But the, the problem is that people have a reaction to that beyond, the, beyond it just being a category. And one of the things you say, I, I believe, is about calling it auto-heterosexual as a, as a way to relate it to the most common sexuality, which is heterosexuality. When I read that, 
um, first of all, I, I agree with you that it needs to be um, accepted foremost by the people who um, are oriented this way. Like the, the first thing is, if this is you, you need to own it and stop um, and stop this, not only um, resistance for yourself, but you know, the, the rest of society. We, we need to talk about what trans, what transgender really means, what transsexuality re really means. But I'm thinking about all of these troubles with language. And when you change the language to try to change people's reaction to it, um, or maybe obscure, uh, I don't want to say obscure the reality of it, but it, it, for me, it conjured up gender affirming care versus sex change. And that sex change was inaccurate, but we all knew what it meant, right? It meant changing your secondary sex characteristics through medical interventions. When we say gender affirming care, we obscure that reality. And, and, that, and that's what helps so many people on the left and liberals to support that for children. If we, if we said pediatric and adolescent sex change, there would be uproar. So I think we have to be very careful that we don't do Orwellian newspeak, you know, when we shift language. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, I mean, but like I made the the shift with regards to, like in the book I described, like things that we, that sexologists would call paraphilias, you know, which is in relation to normophilia. Um, I describe them as non-vanilla in the book because that's fundamentally the same thing. Um, that it's vanilla is just the the regular sort of attraction that people are used to and accept, and just everything outside of that is is non-vanilla and like that's basically what they call paraphilia. Um, because yeah, I, I understand the resistance to the euphemism treadmill. Um, but I think it's probably <laughs> um unavoidable in the subject. Like people have strong feelings about sexuality and gender, um, very strong feelings because it it impacts all of our lives in various ways, and it's um our sexualities really tug on our heartstrings, um, and they sort of guide how we decide to live our lives, and so people have strong feelings about it, and so there, I think it's inevitable that there's going to be a process of this euphemism treadmill with um, when talking about non-conventional sexualities. Why do you think it's important that we make this acceptable to talk about? Because it's the most common cause of gender dysphoria. And if, if it is important to address the suffering of that we call gender dysphoria, then it is important that we understand its cause because only by understanding its cause can we begin to figure out good techniques and approaches to managing it and reducing it. And when you have, um, you know, when you break this down into kind of a, a version of body dysphoria versus wanting to wear the clothing that's marketed to the opposite sex, um, you know, what would you have, let's say clinicians do with that? Would, would you have them, evaluate for do you have sartorial 
gender dysphoria versus, you know, how, how yeah. should people be evaluated based on these realities that you've cataloged? Yeah, basically, gender, like the medical gender transition is directly about changing the body, the anatomic aspect. And um, it's also secondarily by changing the body, you change how you're seen socially. So medical transition is about addressing anatomic and social dysphoria primarily. And um, so I would want clinicians to understand these further sub distinctions so that, you know, they could tell their patients, like see whether their patients might not be adequately satisfied with dressing as the other sex or you know, sort of loosening up on their repression and like behaving more like, the, like whatever their vision of the other sex is. Um, basically, by like the, the clothing and the behavior are the most accessible ways to have cross gender embodiment with like the least risk. Um, so if like a patient comes into the clinic, and, you know, they have gender dysphoria, but haven't tried the dressing or altering their behavior yet. I would say like, Hey, try that. And then like, you know, come back and tell us how you feel, you know, or you can ask, you know, so you ask them questions about the various types of gender dissatis dissatisfaction they have. And if most of them, like, if they only say that it's literally just my body, I don't care about how other people see me. Like, I'd be fine with going on estrogen, but not changing my name or pronouns. Like, I just need my body to be different. Like, that would be someone that would be a pretty good candidate for medicalization. Because if that's the only way that they have of embodying the other sex, because they don't care about the clothing or anything else, then the only way they'll be able to meet the that cross-gender inclination to their satisfaction is through medicalization either that or wearing a bunch of you know prosthetics like breastplates and stuff but I, th I don't think that's really like it works in the short term but i think they'll just get attached to that and ultimately want to do medicalization anyways so yeah it's it matters because um right now there's just this construct of gender dysphoria and clinicians aren't doing the first like splitting it into the homosexual versus auto heterosexual kind and then you know if they do have an auto heterosexual patient they would then need to split their dysphoria into those further subdivisions of gendered embodiment and right now they're not seeing it with that fine you know that fine lens so under the kind of two 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 types of um trans people uh, you know, Blanchardian construct, gender dysphoria is always related to sexuality in some way. Yeah. So, you know, one of the, one of the biggest trans activist lines is that gender and sexuality have nothing to do with each other. How would you make it past that? Um, well, I mean, it's just false. So I, I think it's irrelevant that they say that because it's not true. And that falsehood will be replaced with truth. Oh, that's <laughs> when, when and how. <laughs> I mean, that's what they're teaching very young children, that there's this thing called gender. And this, and again, it's not my, my definition of gender, but and this, this thing called sexuality, and they're totally separate. I mean, that that's the lesson song. Yeah, I, I know that that's being that that's in the curriculum now for kids and it's confusing to them um 
yeah, like the gender bred person and gender unicorn, like, I mean, they're bullshit. And it's not a model. It doesn't make any predictions. It's just like, oh, you have these different attributes and they're totally unconnected and anyone can be at any different like spot on these various dimensions of being. And, but, you know, the two type model tells you, okay, yes, all these dimensions of being exist, like your gender identity, gender expression, your sexuality and, and such, but they're all inextricably linked in predictable ways that are known. Well, one, I think one big limitation of that early research is that it was based on the people desperate enough to travel to the clinic, right? Yeah. And, and um, there was so much stigma and there were so many barriers and there was no internet and there was like one clinic in Toronto and, um, and now we've seen what happens when ideas about gender are mass marketed, which is what I, I think they are, via our institutions. Gender identity is an idea that's marketed um, for all kinds of reasons and in all kinds of ways. And then suddenly there's a huge explosion. Um, and I don't just think it's social contagion, I think it's marketing. And I think our ideas of gender are very, very malleable, especially when it comes to children. So it shows us how easy it is to change people's minds about gender and why there's been such a concerted effort to market ideas to, to women. I'm just thinking about the book I just finished called Housewife and like just the mass marketing effort after World War II to um, promote this idea of um, of the housewife, which was a you know it, in a nuclear family in the suburb, which is a way no one had ever lived, um, but it it was a it was a mass marketing campaign um, subsidized via uh, mortgage discounts and just uh, like all uh, you know. Um, taking money away from public transit and putting it to highways. Like there was an infrastructural movement to create a house. Um, so I guess that's also why I having, again, all the things I've studied that really show, like it's really, it's actually pretty easy to, to change people's minds about gender. And, and that's why people are so protective of it because I do think it's, it's a way to control people, not just women, men, men and women. Um, so I, I think it's hard to interrupt that with truth. I think it's hard to locate truth in gender. It, in general, you can find research to support any idea you have about gender, especially in this day and age when the peer review process is so, is so broken. I just, so, so I, yeah, I mean, I don't know how we, I don't know how we break through that mass um, marketing effort to get this idea out. Yeah, well, so I I I agree that there is that that big societal push right now to push a particular idea of gender onto people, and it will be very hard to counteract that. Um. 
but you know as, as you mentioned like people's ideas of gender seem to change inter- intergenerationally um so you know it's it's going to keep shifting um what people think of gender um but these sort of sexual orientations are forever in the sense that they arise intergenerationally and they may you know take like appear different from and be expressed differently from generation to generation but fundamentally this the sort of like inborn proclivities are the same um intergenerationally so there's mm-hmm. you know sexuality is similar across these generations yeah as a, but gender can be different right Sex yeah and like sexuality is constant gender it, is exactly and, and like what our ideas about gender shift but like based there's going to be you know a hundred years from now unless we've gotten rid of it with genetic engineering or whatever there's still going to be homosexuality there's still going to be auto heterosexuality um these things are going to keep coming up and they will morph and change how they manifest in response to the society the people find themselves in and their own personal life experiences but um i'm yeah while it seems like an uphill battle to go against this big like gender goliath that's out there right now i see it as ultimately a temporary fad and it will crumble because it's full of falsehoods and people like to believe true things wow i i i don't I like your vision. I don't think people like to believe true things. <laughs> well, not everyone. I, no, people hold <laughs> beliefs for a lot of like emotional reasons yeah. too. Like yeah. people believe things because it makes them feel good. But there yeah. still is. There's and gives them um, yeah, gives them meaning and direction and structure and exactly. But there are still scientists. There's still there's a subset of people that are hyper rational and insistent on getting things correct and right. And their influence has a lot, it really influences general understanding of the world over time. Like their ideas might be opposed vehemently at first, you know, like the theory of evolution had intense opposition. It took a long time to get implemented, but now it's just taken as a given among a lot of people. people. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, if you don't believe in various, you know, religions, but like it's, it has more acceptance than ever before. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. um, so even though like at first it can seem like, how could you get this idea to catch on if there's so many people against it? Like it has been done before. Like everything that's believed now, like originally was not believed. People had different beliefs. And so there's just a, a temporariness to all of this. But if scientific concepts that accurately describe reality have special staying power. So what do you think of the concept of gender identity as it's taught to children now that each person has an innate gender identity, a kind of a gendered soul, and sometimes it matches your body and sometimes it doesn't? Yeah, I don't think that's true. Like, I I think there's a lot of people that don't have any special inner feeling of being any particular gender. And I think that's actually probably the norm is my guess. Um, I haven't looked into research on that per se. It's just my impression. Um, but I do, yeah, I do think that idea of a gendered soul, it makes sense to to auto-heterosexuals because their orientation does create a tangible sense 
that they have that mind of the other sex and that they do have that soul inside of them. Like I've experienced that feeling before. I was very suspicious of it because I'm like, I know I'm male. Like, what the hell is this? This is not real. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But not everyone has such strong like epistemology in terms of like, you know, believing things. So, but yeah, there are people that do have an intergendered soul feeling and it varies in its intensity from strong to like, you know, or like it wavers back and forth. But most people, I don't think, have an innate feeling of a gender. Like when I ask them, you know, I've asked like friends in real life that aren't trans, like, you know, like, how do you know you're a woman? And like, my favorite answer I got was my bits, you know, talking about like wearing <laughs> their genitals. Like, it's just like people like they look in the mirror and they're like yeah i can tell i'm this thing but it, it doesn't mean that that feeling that idea of being that thing came from an intergendered soul you know which like i think people know that they're technically a particular gender but they don't necessarily have that that inner feeling that like the gender ideology kind of promotes so it's getting late but i want i want to ask well, I want to say something and then have a little chat about something at the end. So I, the thing about that you said about people are going to get tired of it, or we're going to have the generational shift and we'll move beyond this idea. I think the complication with that is that it's been worked into law, right? Like we're trying to either replace sex with gender identity or add gender identity as a facet of sex in law, it's institutionalized in medicine, it's institutionalized in psychology, it's institutionalized in education, and most, and and as I said, in law, which is where it's scariest. So we have shifted the bedrock of our society to accommodate the idea of gender identity. And that's an, and we have marketed it to a generation of children far be far long before they understand sex constancy right so long before they understand that the category of of boy and girl is based on their reproductive system so then in a society if if we agree that gender identity is something that primarily applies to auto heterosexuals and not to the vast majority of society but we've now institutionalized the idea to the detriment of women and to the detriment of many children either experiencing gender dysphoria or experiencing other mental health conditions and getting you know roped into this kind of um rogd gender dysphoria thing that's happening with young people um well that well then what i mean then we've then we've remade our entire society to accommodate this kind of um, inner a thing that you just said you knew was not true about, you know, that you had a gender identity, but it, you knew it wasn't true. So now we've legalized falsehoods and remade society to accommodate a small number of uh, mainly, but perhaps not only men with a, a, uh, a non-vanilla sexual orientation in your in your language yeah yeah that seems like a well it's i mean mostly 
a lot of the transitioners now are autoantrophilic, but like I do get your broader point that like it's it's how like if this has been enshrined in law, it kind of has a feeling of permanence to it. Like how are we going to get rid of this? Um, but laws have been changed all the time. You know, like there was like take prohibition for an example that was sure. put in constitutional amendment and then after like what like 10 or 15 years they're like actually this is really bad and then people switched and they got rid of it mm-hmm. um so i think if the law ends up not serving the majority of people it will be changed so that it does and it, I, I can understand the despair about it being enshrined in law right now but again i don't think law is subject to change there are ways to change the law and i think that it is possible to create laws such that the the auto heterosexuals will still be able to like get medical care and such and and have cultural norms that that allow for their inclusion in society but without necessarily being enshrined in law um I mean, in terms of the, the the concept of gender identity, doesn't. Um, I'm not sure that it really needs to be enshrined in law, although just for the most part, I yeah. don't really think about policy <laughs> as much. I'm just trying to figure out what's true, like the whole arguments over what, over the aughts. I. Um, yeah, people get. I, I'm more concerned with what's true, and then I try to work from there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand that. You know, I spend most of my day talking to parents and kids who've been traumatized by uh, the not only the gender affirmative model, but the politicization of this of research. And um, so, it's that's part of what's true. That's part of what's true is that people are getting really hurt, and. Um, once somebody calls CPS on a family because they're not affirming a child's quote unquote gender identity because the parent is quote unquote unsafe, it's very hard for the it's very hard for the family to recover. Yeah, no, that's and, a very worrying phenomenon that's happening. Yeah. That well, yeah. And it's only reported in in the in the right wing press. So again it goes, it's the politicization of these ideas. Um and 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 they're much more frightening, I think, from the left than than the right, um, because they are committed to not telling the truth about any of it. Um, yeah, they don't believe in objective truth. Not a, not any not anymore. Right? It's it's uh, racist, transphobic, and all those all the, other all categories. All the isms. All the isms. Yeah. I am really confused why you think ROGD kids, especially ROGD girls, are auto-heterosexual as opposed to just, um, you know, they're the same group of girls that used to do, well, they still often, a lot of them cut. They're the same group of girls that that used to be um, plagued with anorexia right they're just there's a new mental health condition but it's the same population what what makes you think they're auto heterosexual um firstly the most common kind in males is auto heterosexual and 
and females scientists haven't yet looked into the question of whether they're autoandrophilic and they've just filled in the gap with oh this is a social contagion a rapid onset and um, they're kind of presupposing that they aren't autoandrophilic but when I look at the trans men talk to each other online with the way they talk about gender euphoria which is a good like gender euphoria is kind of an indicator of auto heterosexuality like a lot of them talk about having gender euphoria um and so and a lot of them will talk about having experiencing like phantom penis you know which is, is another phenomenon that can happen from autoandrophilia and so they describe the way they're describing their experience accords with the idea that they are attracted to being a man and that it just it hasn't been explained to them so they have no way of understanding that that like i could have never introspected my way to this understanding i have now my orientation it took reading a lot of scientific literature and talking to people that have done the same um but yeah i the reason i think that a lot of what we're seeing as rogd is another thing is you know it it like typically arises around puberty right like which is Mm -hmm. what you would expect if it was driven by a sexual orientation that's like it, that's exactly what you would expect and the fact that it also comes by surprise to the parents the same as with autogynophilia like that often comes as a surprise to the parents where it's just this private thing they didn't talk about and then all of a sudden they want to transition so there's a lot of parallels between how autogynophilia is described in terms of it coming on around puberty and coming by surprise to the people that know them because they weren't like necessarily as naturally gender non-conforming so i just think the simpler explanation is that females experience this too yes and and i'm i'm not denying that uh, i was just noting that sexologists to you know debate whether or not there's such a thing as female sexual orientation some of them are skeptical and because they probably because they haven't seen it much but i i think that um while i understand how you have come to this conclusion um i think that teenage having severe discomfort with your body uh around puberty is the most normal possible teen girl experience and especially being uncomfortable with um attention people looking at your body and it's just it's just it's such a universal experience that to make larger meaning of it, um, and to make it about identity or to make it about medicine in any way, um, ob- obscures the reality of being a teenage girl in America, and that there are that those other co- common mental health conditions also arose usually at the same time, and that some of those conditions are are on the wane as gender dysphoria is on the wax. So I don't, you know, we don't have good, we don't have good research. We know we have a never before seen cohort. And that's also, as you know, totally politicized in this country. It's, it, it's acknowledged in, in some other countries. Um, one thing I, one thing I really understand is that it's important for you, and I and I agree with you, to get the truth about auto-heterosexuality out, not only so that we can uh, 
push back against gender identity, which is policy everywhere now, right? So that, so that for truth, I am also for truth. And, um, but you advocate teaching it to children in school. And I am, I have school-aged children who have been taught all kinds of things that I have to figure out how to unteach or offer different perspectives without ever telling what, while commu communicating to them that they can't really share with other people that I disagree with what they've been taught. So I don't know what, if anything about sexuality should be taught in school at this point. Because um, you can learn it on, you, there are a lot of other places to learn about sexuality. Yeah. Could so, be in a puberty book. Would you be, um, are you okay with kids learning about the existence of bisexuality and homosexuality in sex education? I don't know. You know if, around like puberty age, for instance? I don't know if school is the place for that anymore. Because there's very little in in where I live in public schools, unless you have a very advanced kid or like, are so rich that you can pay to tutor them into one of these public schools, um, your kid is going to a, a fairly crappy public school, right? We, ha we have very elite public schools here, but the rest of them, you're, they're just not, you're not doing a lot of academic learning, but you're doing a lot of moralistic learning. And, and you know, what, what is normal, what is that, you know, not the norm, but normal, right? Which has a, a moral edge to it. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what should be normalized. And I don't know what, what role school should play in that. Most of these kids have the, the entire world on a device in their pocket. So, you know, is, is so much of what's happening, so much of this gender dysphoria phenomenon it's starting in school and it's starting by teaching gender identity and it's starting by teaching if you feel uncomfortable, if you're if you don't adhere to the stereotypes of your sex, maybe you should get body parts removed. You know, I mean I so well, I, I be, just, it's being taught people, wrong. It is, yes, but wrong yeah. is, you know, people have a lot of different ideas about right and wrong and correct and incorrect. And therefore, I just don't know. I don't know what, you know, I don't know if I want comprehensive sex ed at school and I don't know what should be in comprehensive sex ed. Yeah, I guess like when I'm advocating for it to be taught in sex ed, it's not that it's not really that complex, like the depths it would go into, you know, like, like bisexuality, and homosexuality, like kids get taught. Sometimes people are attracted to the same sex. It happens. It's fine. Um, and it seems to be mostly due to like a born this way thing, but like, you know, don't be mean to people that have it, but like, that's what it is. And I, I think a similar thing could be done with auto heterosexuality where they're like, you know, sometimes people are attracted to the other sex and they like them so much that they want to be that too. And, and that's sort of like an inborn predisposition and, you know, don't be mean to them because they have this inclination, but um, yeah, basically that, in, in extreme cases, either of these two things can lead to people to want to live as the other sex. Um, but 
just because you have one of these things doesn't mean that you know transitioning is the right thing to do like you know like it, mm-hmm. it, can, it can be described simply um and they can get the gist you know mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think this is part these are the these are the big battles about um about about what is true what should be taught where how much control parents should have versus educators and it's really difficult in a world where all the information is available to everyone but it's all so politicized that it's weirdly hard to get good information and, right and and um so here's the very last question i promised what would you say to someone who seems to share your inclinations but is in denial about it and has accepted the argument that that autogynophilia is not real and is hateful and um, doesn't seem to be comfortable exploring that that explains them in any way but from the outside sure looks like it to the observer um like what i usually say is you know it's you know if if you're like autoandrophilic or autogynophilic it's okay to be this thing um the science for it is like the science for autogynophilia is pretty solid um autoandrophilia science is sadly underdeveloped um but it, it clearly exists. There's cases in the literature. But I, I basically I tell people that like it's it's okay that Blanchard was right. You know? <laughs> like he was right and and that's that's okay. It doesn't like it's not bad to be this thing. It's just a different way of being that presents its own set of difficulties, but it doesn't mean you're immoral or a monster or anything. Um it's it's just you know, just an unconventional sexual orientation and that it's, yeah, it's okay to be this thing. And you don't need to believe in this like gender religion. Like it's believing in that is optional because there's gender science and you can believe true things instead. I love that. That's a great note to end on. Phil, where can people pick up your book, Auto Heterosexual? Um, well, it's on Amazon's usually where people buy it because that's where people buy things. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you if you just Google the term auto heterosexual, you will find it. Um, and you can find me on Twitter. Or I guess I didn't even mention the full title. It's auto heterosexual attracted to being the other sex. Um, it explains the most common type of gender dysphoria so that hopefully this type of suffering can be reduced and understood. And it, you can find me on Substack, uh, com, where I've uploaded a bunch of chapters for free, you know, just because I'm trying to spread the information, like making mm-hmm. money is nice, but I care more about getting the ideas out there. So mm-hmm. check out my Substack. And I'm also on Twitter at, uh, at autogynophilic. Um, that name was somehow still available because my kind have so much shame, but like, whatever, I took mm-hmm. it and um so yeah substack twitter and amazon okay well phil illy thank you so much this was very interesting thank you lisa